Star News Station. Takeover of the Department of Justice by an autocratic leader. Donald Trump is running for president on a platform of retribution. We'll look at what policies that could lead to. For Sunday, December 10th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Also, we'll head to Dubai, where negotiators from around the world are working to hammer out agreements to stem rising global temperatures. It's still possible just to do it, but we are really running out of time rapidly. And we'll hear about the record-breaking new $700 million deal baseball superstar Shohei Otani just signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Plus, we'll talk to music producer Rick Rubin about the spirituality of creative work. You could think of it as a devotional act, and if people like it, it's great. And if they don't, we wouldn't change it because we've made it with our hearts and souls, and it's true. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israeli officials say 117 hostages in Gaza are still alive. 20 others taken captive by Hamas in the October 7th attacks have been declared dead. Hamas says one was killed in a failed Israeli rescue operation. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. In recent weeks, Israel has confirmed 20 hostages' deaths. Israel's prime minister's office says their bodies are being held by Hamas. The Israeli military launched a hostage rescue attempt early Friday. It failed. The military says two of its soldiers were severely wounded, and several Palestinian militants holding hostages were killed. Hamas says a 25-year-old Israeli hostage was killed in the rescue attempt. Israel confirmed his death but would not say if he was killed in the attempted rescue. Talks to release more hostages broke down last week, and Israel's leaders say the renewed bombardment on Gaza will help lead to the release of more captives. But some families of hostages say the fighting endangers the hostages and called on Israel to renew talks for their release. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. In Tennessee, at least six people are dead. Dozens are injured after tornadoes ripped through the area. Authorities say several buildings were destroyed. Alexis Marshall from member station WPLN reports agencies across the state are assessing the damage. At least one regional electrical agency says it could take days to restore power. As of Sunday afternoon, tens of thousands were without power statewide. The head of Nashville's electric utility, Teresa Broyles-Applin, says the grid in suburban Hendersonville northeast of the city, was hit especially hard. That area has extensive damage, and some customers will experience outages lasting potentially days, not just hours. Dozens of people in the Middle Tennessee area were injured. Officials have not yet released estimates for the cost of the damages, but Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell says he expects a disaster declaration. For NPR News, I'm Alexis Marshall in Nashville. A group of advocacy organizations is calling on the Justice Department to investigate the Texas prison system over its use of solitary confinement. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flapp has more. For the second time in three years, the Texas Civil Rights Project says the federal government must intervene in the state's prisons due to their use of solitary confinement. A new report from the group highlights high rates of suicide, consistent short staffing, and a lack of mental health checks. One facility in their port, H.H. Cofield Unit, lacks employees for more than 60 percent of its positions. More than 4,000 men and women are housed in solitary throughout Texas. The United Nations considers long-term solitary confinement to be torture. The report notes that the Texas prison system has had an average of one suicide a week for the past two years. I'm Paul Flavin, San Antonio. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. A storm is approaching New England tonight and it's expected to impact tomorrow morning's commute. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce breaks it all down. Steady rain fills in this evening and becomes heavier after midnight into tomorrow morning. The height of the storm, 4 to 9 a.m. tomorrow, where downpours, embedded thunder, and damaging wind gusts will swing through. Rain totals, 1 to 2 inches with localized flooding. Wind gusts out of the south, 40 to 50 miles per hour for many of us, up to 60 miles per hour on the south shore and Cape. That will mean scattered outages and damage. The rain wraps up mid to late morning, and the wind gradually eases with falling temperatures through the 40s during the day tomorrow. Utility companies are making preparations for potential outages tonight. Rain, strong winds and minor coastal flooding are expected to hit the region, especially the Cape and Islands overnight. Eversource spokesman Chris McKinnon says there are extra crews in the area to handle down trees and damaged power lines. We are making sure that our equipment is ready to go. We have crews that are uh, will be stationed down on Cape Cod um, this evening so that just as soon as the system takes on any damage, um, they'll be in position and ready to start responding just as quickly as it's safely um, possible. We have 59 degrees with some light rain in Boston. Nobel Prize winners, including Harvard professor Claudia Golden, received their awards in Stockholm today. Golden's research traced women's participation in the labor force throughout history. She found that large gaps in levels of employment and pay still persist based on gender. Even though women in the U.S. and in many other countries have more years of education, have a higher degree of graduation from college, Uh, are in some of the best positions, professional positions. Why is it that there are still differences? Golden won the prize in the economics category. She said when she returns from Sweden, she'll get back to work on new research on women's rights. We have steady rain, as I mentioned, tonight into the overnight hours. It could be heavy at times. The rain moves out by mid-morning tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. You are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. The other day, one of former President Donald Trump's top allies in the media, Sean Hannity, tried to give Trump a break. Hannity was interviewing Trump on a Fox News town hall, and he fed him a layup question aimed at letting Trump respond to the mounting concerns about just how authoritarian the former president sounds as he runs for a second term. Hannity gave Trump two chances to walk back some of the startling rhetoric, and Trump didn't really leap at the opportunity. (laughs) I love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Trump is facing 91 felony charges across four criminal cases. But he's leading his Republican primary opponents by double digits. And he's tied or ahead of President Biden in most early polls. So the idea of a Trump return to the White House is very real. And many people who worked in Trump's first administration are very alarmed at what he's promising to do. Here's former Defense Secretary Mark Esper speaking to MSNBC. He'll be able to, you know, enact his policy of revenge that he's been talking about in retribution. And look, it's, it's, it's quite a dangerous time for our democracy if that were to happen. Revenge, retribution, that's how Trump himself is talking about his White House priorities, like in the September campaign rally in South Dakota. 
That means that if I win and somebody wants to run against me, I call my attorney general. I say, listen, indict him. Well, he hasn't done anything wrong that we know of. I don't know. Indict him on income tax evasion. You'll figure it out. In an interview with Univision, a Spanish-language news outlet, Trump said he would try to get his opponents out of the election entirely, influencing election outcomes. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly, that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. Trump has increasingly been painting his political opponents as subhuman in ways that mirror authoritarian leaders of the past. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. On social media, Trump recently said that former Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, who stood up to Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election, should be executed. It all paints a pretty clear picture of what a second Trump administration would look like. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney told NPR's Leila Fadl that Americans shouldn't count on the system of checks and balances. What's the stake here for the country? It couldn't be higher. It really couldn't. And sometimes you hear people say, I, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently where they suggested that even if Donald Trump were elected, it wouldn't be that bad because, of course, we have these institutions and we have these traditions and we have the separation of powers and, and that people could somehow count on that to restrain him. And one of the main messages of my book is, no, you can't. You mm. cannot count on those institutions to restrain him. Our Sunday cover story. Donald Trump is openly laying out his agenda for a second term. Just how authoritarian would it be? In the coming weeks, we are going to take a close look at the different ways it could play out. And today, we'll start with a branch of the federal government where that campaign of retribution would likely be focused, the Department of Justice. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson covered nearly every moment of Donald Trump's first four years in the White House and has been looking into what a second term could mean at the DOJ. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Scott. So you've been talking to people about this, about what, what might be possible when it turns to actual policy, when it comes to actual decisions being made. Trump has talked so often about retribution and revenge. What could that actually look like? You know, the first person I reached out to is civil rights leader Sherilyn Eiffel, who's now at Harvard University, about to start a new job at Howard. And this is what she had to say about a second Trump Justice Department. We would be looking at something catastrophic and unprecedented in this country, which is um, the takeover of the United States Department of Justice, the most important uh, legal entity, certainly in this country, and but perhaps maybe even in the world, uh, by an autocratic leader. One of the things that came up over and over again in my reporting this week was concern about Trump possibly prosecuting his political adversaries. He said he wants to do that to prosecute members of the Biden family, people who have criticized him, like former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley and others who may be in line to testify against him in federal court trials next year. I also spoke with former Justice Department lawyer Carrie Cordero. She's now at the Center for a New American Security. She says it would take a lot of people inside the Justice Department to drum up a prosecution that's out of bounds or not supported by the facts and the law. But with enough time and enough personnel, it is possible. And is personnel the main thing to think about here? Because I'm thinking back to the first time around and a lot of the people who had 
long careers inside uh, the Justice Department who were in key positions, who often kind of pushed back or didn't follow the Twitter demands to do X or Y. Very different situation by the end of that first term when, when there were people in the Justice Department who were taking serious part in these conversations about the election results. I mean, what, what's the right way to think about the types of people Trump would be staffing a second go-round with? Yes, Scott. Remember, Donald Trump tried to make a man named Jeffrey Clark, the acting attorney general at the end of his first term. Clark backed these phony voter fraud claims and wanted the DOJ to send letters to state authorities talking about election fraud. That was actually averted by a threat of mass resignations near the end of Trump's term. But people inside and outside the Justice Department worry the people Trump might want to run the Justice Department next time around will be more compliant. There's really a lot of concern about upending the norms that have been in place since Watergate that erect some kinds of boundaries between the DOJ and the White House. This year, Jeff Clark actually wrote a white paper saying the Justice Department is not independent of the White House. Uh, now, the Trump campaign says only it is responsible for policy if he wins again. But already names of possible cabinet members are emerging. And people like Stephen Miller, Mike Davis, senators like Mike Lee or J.D. Vance, they're all mentioned as possible DOJ appointees in a Trump Justice Department. And they're by and large not people with DOJ or prosecutorial experience. And they're also pretty vocal yeah. on behalf of some of Donald Trump's most uh, extreme policy positions. So if people are being put into place in these key positions early on who are on the same wavelength as Trump, who have the same norm breaking approach, who, who, who don't think of these as a, who don't think of the DOJ as an independent agency, what are some of the ways that they could shape the Justice Department or what law and order looks like? You know, Trump mostly avoided the Justice Department and its role in the clemency process at the end of his first term. This time around, uh, some of Trump's appointees potentially could embrace Trump's use of clemency, uh, pardon power, which is uh, virtually un unlimited, mm -hmm. and, and power to commute sentences, um, make certain kinds of criminal cases go away that have already been brought. But even more than that, Trump's overall approach to crime and punishment might turn out to be pretty brutal. Here's again civil rights leader Sherilyn Eiffel. One of the things Trump has talked about is, you know, uh, shoplifters being executed. You know, if you if you take caught stealing something from a store, you should be shot. Uh, and we shouldn't underestimate the way Trump's vision of, of law, to the extent he thinks of it even as law, will permeate throughout the country. You know, it's not lost on me that in his first term, Trump said it would be okay if police roughed up suspects when they put them in the back of patrol cars. And the head of the Drug Enforcement Administration actually resigned after that statement. Sherilyn Eiffel's worried that some people in law enforcement may be emboldened by it in a potential Trump yeah. second term. We're talking about a lot of these things that, again, Trump, if he didn't fully try to do it the first time around, he voiced support for that type of thing, right? And we're talking about a lot of things that didn't ultimately end up happening for one way or another. Why do you think that could be different a second time around? One is because a former President Trump was really a novice at running a government last time around. Now he knows some of where those lines are. In fact, one example that came up in my reporting was Trump was not aware when special counsel Robert Mueller was appointed to investigate election interference by Russia in the 2016 election. Trump was not aware of a Justice Department policy that basically said you cannot indict a sitting president. He certainly is aware of that, very aware of that right now. 
now. Yeah. And, and some of that knowledge and some of the new people he may put in place uh, could help him effectuate some of his policy goals. You've talked about the broad powers of clemency and pardoning that a president has. This is a president who is currently charged with federal criminal crimes. There are two different cases uh, currently uh, against Trump in the federal system, one in Florida related to classified documents, one in Washington, D.C., related to his attempt to overturn the election. What powers would Trump have to shape those cases against him if they haven't gone to trial by the time he would take office? You know, Donald Trump could try to pardon himself in one or both of those cases if he wins the White House. It's an unsettled legal question whether he has that authority, but he certainly might try. Or he could just direct his new attorney general or somebody at the top of the Justice Department on an acting basis to get rid of those cases. And we know from recent history, courts are really reluctant to tell prosecutors who they can and can't charge with crimes, how to use that important discretion they have. That issue came up when Bill Barr ran the Justice Department, and he tried to back away from prosecuting Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. The courts came down and said, uh, you know, we can't tell the Justice Department who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. And the DOJ did not go ahead with that case against Flynn. Mm-hmm. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you for your reporting on this. I feel like we will talk about it again soon. Oh, happy to be here always. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include The Huntington with The Heart Sellers. Recent Asian immigrants Jane and Luna run into each other in the grocery store on Thanksgiving in 1973 and find they have much in common. A new play by Lloyd Suh, directed by May Adralis. Now through December 23rd at the Calderwood Pavilion. HuntingtonTheater.org. Start your week with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow. Nikki Haley is a so-called factional candidate. Find out what a factional candidate is and what they bring to the Republican field in 2024. Tomorrow morning on the radio and the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Officials in Israel say 117 hostages in Gaza are still alive, but 20 others have been declared dead. Hamas blames one of the deaths on a failed Israeli rescue mission. Meanwhile, battles are raging in Gaza as the situation turns dire with little food, electricity or fuel. Many are sleeping in the streets after their homes were destroyed by Israeli strikes. In central Tennessee, cleanup is underway after several tornadoes hit the area yesterday, leaving at least six people dead and dozens injured. Many buildings were destroyed. And at the weekend box office, Boy and the Heron debuted in the top spot with an estimated $12 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. As we near the end of what is likely to be the hottest year on record, representatives from nearly every country on Earth are meeting in Dubai to try to agree on a plan to keep warming in check. It's the latest in a series of United Nations climate conferences known as COP, and many of them over the past decade have made big promises, promises that still are not being fully met as the Earth keeps warming. We're going to hear more about the United Arab Emirates as the venue for an international climate conference in a few minutes. But first, update on this year's negotiations. We are joined by NPR's Nathan Rott, who is in Dubai. Hey, Nate. Hey. How's it going out there? Scott, it is smoggy, hot, and contentious. Uh, so pretty much all the perfect conditions for people from every corner of the world to come together and try to address a global crisis. Yeah, when I hear smoggy, hot, and contentious, I think that is a prime setting to reach complicated agreements. Totally, man. And, you know, jokes aside, it's not all that bad. You know, this United Nations climate conference known as COP, as you said, it happens almost every year. This is the 28th iteration of it. And like most COPs, we've already seen some flashy pledges, some promises from countries, including the U.S., to address super climate warming emissions like methane. Uh, we saw countries establish and put money into something called a loss and damage fund, which will help provide money to poorer countries that have not contributed that much to climate change but are already feeling disproportionate effects. But the main goal of this summit is to take stock of how the world is doing and its pledge to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. That's a bit more than 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit for those in America. And they want to try to agree to language that will maybe put us on a path towards that goal. But given the hottest year on record, given all the extreme heat and weather that we've been seeing, I feel like maybe is not the word we are looking for. It sounds like we are not currently on that track. We are not currently on that track. I'll let Jim Ski, the chairman of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's authority on the state of climate change, answer that question for you. It's still possible just to do it, but we are really running out of time rapidly because at some point, if we carry on as we are, we will run out of rope effectively and we will be above 1.5. So there have been commitments made here, the pledge to cut methane that I mentioned, and 130 countries signing on to a deal aimed at tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030 globally. Those will help. But the International Energy Agency put out a report earlier today that found even if all those parties who signed on to those deals follow through, it still would not be nearly enough to limit warming to 1.5. So what are other things people are talking about to close that gap then? So the most controversial and perhaps the most consequential item that countries are considering here is a pledge to phase out fossil fuels. Now, there are a lot of caveats here. What's the timeline of a phase out? What does phase out even mean? All of this is still being debated and it's getting a lot of pushback from big fossil fuel producing companies and countries like chiefly Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I've heard that there are some smaller developing countries that are leery of that pledge too because their countries also run on fossil fuels. And Brandon Wu, a climate activist from the group Action Aid USA, explains countries are leery because of money. They cannot go home and sell this 
without the promise uh, that support is going to come. Most developing countries simply do not have the resources to do an urgent fossil fuel phase out without that support, and they have no reason to believe, based on you know decades of history at this point, that it will come. And this question of funding of whether richer countries like the U.S., the EU, China are going to help smaller countries not only pay for an energy transition, but also adapt to the climate change that's already occurred. This is hanging over all of these negotiations and is going to be one of the biggest challenges to finding some sort of consensus here in the coming days. That's NPR's Nathan Rott at the U.N. Climate Conference in Dubai. Nate, stay cool. Thank you, Scott. And these conferences aren't just a place for world leaders to gather to address climate change. Climate activists often use them as an opportunity to gather in those same places to demand those leaders do more to address the climate crisis. But those demands are hard to hear this year because protests in Dubai face restrictions. Still, as NPR's Aya Batrari reports, climate activists are finding ways to make their demands heard. The global climate talks this year are massive not just because nearly 100,000 people are here, but also because it's unfolding across an expansive pavement and pavilions originally built to host the World's Fair two years ago in Dubai. It's extremely big. The geography of, of the meeting to me is not conducive to people coming together. That's Agnes Calamard. She's the secretary general of the human rights group Amnesty International. Calamard says the venue is not set up for spontaneous meetings or unplanned interactions. Because it's not conducive, you know, maybe well representing not the culture of Emiratis, but certainly the political culture of the elite and uh, the repression of her thought, of her conscience. Uh, that is so prevalent in the UAE. The United Arab Emirates, known for drawing tourists to Dubai, insists that its tolerance is in fact what brings people here from all over the world. But public dissent and protests aren't permitted. Calamard's wearing a t-shirt with the picture of imprisoned Emirati human rights activist Ahmad Mansour, who's serving a 10-year sentence for critical social media posts. Calamard says she put the shirt on only after getting past security for the UN-designated blue zone where the official events are happening. Activists like Rauf ibn Muhammad from Tunisia say they're facing a slew of restrictions trying to mobilize at this year's COP and have been warned against any street protests outside the site. We can't do nothing in the street. Okay, fine. But even here inside, we can't do anything. Like, if you want to do an action, you have to respect a lot of rules. He says protests aren't allowed to mention countries by name and tells me about other restrictions. You don't have the right to do a lot of noise. They will tell you where to stay and what time, and you can decide. So, with the big space, with non-visibility, so it's like they're killing the movement. And I can't imagine COP without social movement. When human rights are under attack, what do we do? Still, protesters did manage to hold a visible rally demanding a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and read the names of some of the thousands of Palestinian children killed by Israeli bombardment following a deadly attack two months ago on Israel by armed Palestinian groups. Director of the civil society group War on Want, Asad Rahman, helped rally dozens at this COP protest, saying the world's powerful are profiting from oppression. But then saying they don't have any money for climate finance, but billions for bombs and bullets against the people. Protesters didn't wave the Palestinian flag, 
but many wore the checkered black and white scarf associated with the Palestinian cause. Many also changed the blue COP28 lanyard for one in the colors of the Palestinian flag and shouted, To hear directly from the activists here, I headed to the Civil Society Hub, located near the edge of the conference grounds. This is where OPEC, the oil cartel that's led by Saudi Arabia and includes the UAE, has a pavilion on the ground floor. On the second floor is where I meet Ina Maria Shokongo from Namibia. She says an approved protest calling for renewable energy in Africa a sector the UAE has backed and is investing in, was abruptly cancelled and she's not sure why. This nonsense of trying to suppress our voices because we are against fossil fuels is, is pure colonialism, neo-colonialism, and they need to stop it. Even if they come to our countries, they should know we are not afraid of them. The UAE is one of the world's largest oil and gas producers, and activists here say their presence in Dubai is to confront that very industry and the emissions causing global warming. NPR News, Dubai. Ten years, $700 million. That's the contract the Los Angeles Dodgers have awarded baseball phenomenon Shohei Otani. The home run hitting outfielder and laser throwing pitcher has earned the largest contract in North American sports history despite the fact that an injury has raised questions about when he'll next be able to take the mound. Otani has already carved out a space for himself in the conversation about baseball's all-time greats during his six years with the Los Angeles Angels, and now he's headed up the I-5 to play for one of baseball's prime franchises. What does it all mean? We are joined now by sports writer Joe Posnanski, who's penned several books about baseball history, including this year's Why We Love Baseball. Welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be here. Is this man worth $700 million to you? Sure. It's not my money. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, he. we knew he was going to break the bank. We knew he was going to have the biggest contract in, in baseball history. I was a little surprised that there was a seven in front of that number rather mm -hmm. than maybe a six. Um, but, I mean, he's worth it on so many different levels, right? I mean, he's worth it, as you mentioned. You know, he's he's one of the best hitters in baseball. He's a fantastic pitcher when he's healthy enough to do it. He's also the biggest icon in the sport by far. And and nobody at this moment is even close. And that's international. That's uh, that's national as well. Yeah. And the Dodgers have a lot of big stars already, but they don't have anybody like Shohei Otani because there isn't anybody like Shohei Otani. So you know that that money is is, you know, of course, because of his great baseball playing. But it's also, I think, to sort of widen uh, the scope of, of baseball in Los Angeles and, and, and around the world, I would guess. I mean, you have spent the last few years writing about baseball's all-time greats. What is the best way to quantify just how special he is? <clears throat> I think that the single best way you can do it is that there's never been anybody like him, ever. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, I did a book, as you mentioned, called The Baseball 100, uh, where I counted down the 100 greatest baseball players ever. And whenever you start talking about that, people will say, I mean, you can't compare anybody to Babe Ruth because not only was Babe Ruth, you know, this extraordinary home run hitter and this larger-than-life figure, but he started his career as a pitcher mm -hmm. and was a great pitcher before uh, before he became the, you know, the, the iconic hitter that he became. Nobody's done it like this, though. Nobody's done it at the same time where you're, 
one of the best hitters in baseball and one of the best pitchers in baseball, same year. You know, he he's won the MVP two of the last three years. He finished second last year. He's received Cy Young votes and came fairly close last year. This is, it's unprecedented. There's never been anything like it in baseball. I guess that says it right there when you start leaving Babe Ruth behind in the conversation. That's, that's, right. that's a, a moment to take notice. I mean, Otani won the World Baseball Classic with Japan last year, but he's been stuck on this mediocre or terrible Angels team his whole career. The Dodgers make the playoffs just about every season, even though it often doesn't go well for them. But how important is it for baseball to see him in October, and how important is is it for him to maybe climb up the ranks in your revised editions to be on the stage in October? Well, we'll start with him because it's incredibly important. I I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago. uh, They were doing a a documentary on him in Japan, uh, and and they were asking me that exact question. They were like, you know, how important is it for him? And the the truth of the matter is that you can only reach so many heights without doing some things in the postseason, doing some things in the World Series. It's just it's just a fact. Mike Trout, uh, who has also suffered in in you know Anaheim, uh, as much as you can suffer thing. in California in Southern California. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, that's true. It's you know when you're. When you're a baseball player at the top of the game, I mean, there are great players like Ernie Banks who never got to play in the World Series. But if if you want to be the best ever, which is, I think, exactly what Shohei Otani is going for, um, you have to perform in the World Series. It just has to happen. And I'm sure that's a huge reason he signed with the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. As for the Dodgers go, you know, I mean, look, they were already a great team. I mean, they've won 100 games, I think, five of the last six seasons. They're They're an incredible baseball team. Uh, this this takes them to a different level. They're their top three in the, the lineup might be unprecedented at this point. You know, last question. Yesterday on the show, we were talking about the NBA in-season tournament in the context of how much pro sports leagues, I guess aside from the NFL, really seem to be jostling with each other right now for attention with, with smartphones and every other distraction of, of fans. How much of a difference does the superstar moving to the center stage of L.A. make for baseball's overall presence? I think a pretty big difference. I, I I don't think there's any question. I you know everybody sort of saw Shohei Otani as this incredible play, player, but he was he was like alone. It was like a solo act. Mm-hmm. You know you had to tune in to the Angels just to watch him. And now you're going to be tuning in. They're going to certainly be in a pennant race. You've got great players there like Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and mm-hmm. Clayton Kershaw. I mean that is that's a great baseball team. Yeah, it changes the whole dynamic of how people are going to watch Shohei Otani. That is sports writer Joe Posnanski. Thank you so much for talking to us. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced this past Wednesday he is resigning from Congress before his term is up. McCarthy, of course, was booted as House Speaker by his own party earlier this year. But his departure from Congress marks another moment of California's clout in the Capitol taking a hit. It comes about a year after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi stepped away from Democratic House leadership. And it comes as California Republicans continue to struggle for relevance in the nation's largest state. To talk more about McCarthy's departure and what it means, we are joined now by Scott Schaefer of of member station KQED. Scott, I know you're a San Francisco Giants fan. I'm sorry you had to listen to that last segment. (laughs) Oh, my God. Otani, (laughs) don't get me started. You're killing me. 
On McCarthy, though, how will his absence affect California Republicans? Yeah, well, Scott, the most immediate impact could be on fundraising. McCarthy has, as you know, a solid relationship with the state party leadership and with big donors. And, you know, getting people to ante up big bucks to help Republicans in a deep blue state like California is just a heavy lift because, frankly, it's not a great investment. Um, that said, McCarthy does have millions of dollars left in his campaign accounts, and he could steer some of that to California Republicans. And there are five or six vulnerable Republicans in California in House districts won by Joe Biden, and they could use the help. Yeah. Is this another moment in, in, in the wane of a certain type of conservatism? Yeah, in a way it is. You know, going back to his days in the state legislature, uh, McCarthy had been known as a conservative for sure, but also to be pragmatic, somebody who could work with Democrats. And ultimately in D.C., that was his downfall as speaker, you know, because some of the far right of the party just think compromise is a dirty word. So clearly the GOP has moved to the right of McCarthy since he arrived in D.C. in 2007. And, you know, he's tried to keep up. He embraced the Tea Party and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's really outside the mainstream. Uh, And then, of course, McCarthy tied himself to Donald Trump, all of it to fulfill his longtime dream of becoming speaker, which, as we know, didn't end well. It did not. But but let's think about California's influence in Congress for a moment, because there's been a big shift. And it's not just on the Republican side. California Democrats have also recently lost some veteran voices. What does that mean for their party? Well, you know, having two consecutive House speakers from one state was unprecedented until now when Democrat Nancy Pelosi was followed by Republican McCarthy. Now, Pelosi still wields a lot of influence in her party behind the scenes, especially as a fundraiser and a strategist. But we also lost the seniority of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who died this year. So now we have two relatively inexperienced U.S. senators in a body where seniority matters a lot. So at the same time, that's happening. There's been a wave of retirements from longtime members of the House, like Anna Eshoo from Silicon Valley. She's leaving after 30 years. And then you've got three other House members running for the U.S. Senate seat held by Feinstein before she died. Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee, all of them will be out of the House. And assuming one becomes senator, they're, they're not going to have any seniority. When I was working with you a decade ago, we would talk a lot about this whole generation of politicians in California kind of waiting in the wings for their moment because of so many figures who were who were holding power in the state and, and holding it for a long time. Is that moment happening now? Yeah, it really is. As you know, uh, no Republican has won a statewide election here since Arnold Schwarzenegger did it in 2006. And if you look at the Republican congressional delegation, there's not a lot of uh, people there with a lot of influence. Mm -hmm. Democrats, on the other hand, you've got Pete Aguilar from Southern California moving up the ranks. And of course, we got Vice President Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom's profiles rising nationally. So the state still going to have plenty of clout, maybe a little less than we did before. That's Scott Schaefer of member station KQED. Scott, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Scott. And this is not the California Report from 2013, though it sounds like it. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Keep in mind that WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage, with Ken Ludwig's The Games of Foot, directed by Fred Sullivan Jr. Slapstick and hilarity ensue amid murder and mayhem in the home of a celebrated actor. 
famous for his Sherlock Holmes portrayal. You'll be laughing and guessing until the end at this memorable multi-generational holiday outing for all. Through December 17th, LyricStage.com and the International Institute of New England, helping refugees and immigrants find safety, housing, jobs, and a new start in our communities. IINE.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is visiting Washington Tuesday as President Biden seeks to reiterate the U.S.'s commitment to support Kyiv while they defend themselves against Russia's invasion. This is the Biden administration presses Congress for more aid to Ukraine. Former President Donald Trump says he's decided not to testify for a second time in a Manhattan courtroom in his civil fraud trial that threatens his real estate empire. He denies any wrongdoing. And at the COP28 summit in Dubai, more than 100 world leaders agreed to examine their farm and food systems' effects on climate change. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Rick Rubin is one of the biggest music producers of the past few decades. He's worked with everyone from Run DMC to Johnny Cash. His new book isn't about the insider stories you might expect, though. It's more like a spiritual guide to making art. Rachel Martin talked to him about it for her Enlighten Me series. I don't think of myself as a musician. You do not. No, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm in tune with myself, and I'm in tune with my taste, mm. and I can express it clearly, and that's pretty much my job. Are you always right? No. No, I'm. I'm right, for me, and that's all I'm trying to do. My job is to be true to myself. When you present a piece of work to me. I can reflect back what's going on in me. With as little noise involved, with as little, oh, but there's a release date. Oh, but uh, what? how's the radio going to react? Forgetting all of the external baggage that weighs down the artistic process and getting to a pure, we're making the thing that we're Almost, uh, you could think of it as a devotional act. We're making something with our hearts and souls, and then we're sharing it with the world. And if people like it, it's great. And if they don't, we wouldn't change it because we've made it with our hearts and souls. And it's true. It's a true thing we're doing. In preparation for this conversation, I watched the 60 Minutes interview that you did with Anderson Cooper. Lovely conversation. You know, they give a title to their stories, and yours had the word guru in it. He referred to you that way, characterizing you as this kind of person. I mean, that word carries a certain connotation. And I know it was used maybe a little tongue in cheek. I'm not sure. But how 
how does that word sit with you as as this kind of all-knowing, almost spiritual figure? Um, I have, I think it has to do with the fact that for some reason, and I don't know why, in college I decided to stop shaving. <laughs> and it, and, and you think then, it's because you have a beard? I think so. I think if I didn't have a beard, they wouldn't call me guru. <laughs> itself reads as sort of a, a spiritual text. I mean, really. Do you have a spiritual architecture to your own life? I'm, I will say I'm a seeker. So I read across the board different practices. If, if we, I'm looking at a bunch of books in front of me now, if you could see the books, you'd really laugh because it's just... Tell me what they are. Okay, so there's uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is a John Kabat-Zinn book on meditation. Below that is I Am That, uh, Sri Niswargadatta Maharaj. Below that is Awakening the Third Eye. There's a book, 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. There's a book called Entering the Tao. All right, you've made your point. You're a reader and a speaker. <laughs> Those are all of a piece, for yeah. sure. I mean, lots of us can, uh, seeker is a thing that's sort of, not to push back on you, but it's it's a, it's an easy answer. Lots of people are seekers. Yeah. Do you believe in God? Yes. You do? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. I have a knowingness that there is a power greater than us that mm -hmm. seems to animate everything. That's how I would describe it. It's like the thing that, the, however this system works, this world that we're in, this universe that we're in, however it works, I don't think it's accidental. I feel like there's some um, creative energy behind it. We have help. When we're making something beautiful, we have help. We're not working alone. I read that when you were producing Johnny Cash near the end of his life with his last albums, that you took communion with him, that that was something that was important to him. Yeah. And and you were enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And you did it more than once. It became it sort day. of ritual, we right? Day. We did it, we did it at, from the time he got sick. I said, I've never done communion. And he's like, oh, it's a beautiful practice. Let's do it together. And then we did it together in person the first time. And then I said, well, while you're sick, should we just continue doing it every day? And he's like, great, let's do it. So we started doing it every day. And then when we were together, I would call him every day and he would say the words and I would close my eyes and I would visualize, I didn't have the wafer physically yeah. with me, but I visualized the whole thing and I experienced it with him every day. And then when he passed, I could still hear him doing it and did it, I would say for about six months every day with him after. Wow. I think that would change a person to do that. And, and because it's not, it's not like saying a prayer with someone. I mean, it is a highly mystical Christian ritual whereby yeah. you imagine the wafer you're eating is actually the body of Jesus Christ and the yes. grape juice or the wine is the blood. Yes. Um, you're, you're not a Christian. No. What, what effect did that have on you, sharing that with him? I'm a believer. You know, I, I, I'm, and I got to share it with him, and he was a believer. And this was his way of believing. So... Mm -hmm. I, I got to experience his way of believing with him and it was beautiful. And I, and I 
truly believe it enriched my life. It's not calculable how powerful it felt. Is art unfulfilled still worthwhile? And I'll, I'll say more. I, I asked this, um, this is just a totally selfish question that yeah. I don't know if I'm asking for forgiveness from you in some weird way. I don't know. Um, I had to- uh, I forgive you. I thank you. Are you sure? I don't even have to ask a question. I forgive you I, anyway. No. <laughs> Whatever it is, I forgive you, but do ask a question. I took a sabbatical because yes. the news was burning a hole into my soul. And I decided that on that sabbatical, I needed to learn how to play a particular piece of music. You know, I'm not a piano player. I like yeah. played, you know, as a child. But I saw this, um, f the film Nomadland with Francis McDormand and the guy who did the soundtrack, I always mess his name up, um, Luda, Ludovico Ainaudi. Amazing. And, oh my gosh. So He's amazing. amazing. He's so amazing. And um, I could not get that music out of my head. So I was like, I need to try to play this music. Yeah. And I hired a teacher and I practiced. Yeah. And then my sabbatical ended and I had not mastered this piece of music and I haven't tried since because I'm sort of embarrassed that I never did it. And so I guess my question is, is setting an artistic goal and not meeting it, is there still creative value in it for a moment? Absolutely. And I don't know that setting a goal is the way to do it. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of our culture is structured around that, huh? Yeah, like, I, I, I don't, I tend not to set goals. Really? I feel like a, a goal could be a limitation. Like, I can remember a big successful artist, uh, singer in a band saying to me, I'm excited about our next album. We haven't started writing any songs yet, but we want it to be this kind of sci-fi punk rock thing. And it's like, okay, I'm listening. And then I said, what happens if the best songs you write turn out to be more like Neil Young's Harvest. And he's like, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, so then it's like having the goal is like, that's not going to help you get there. It's more like start finger painting and see what happens. Did yeah. anything come from your piano experience that was like, did you feel more connected to the piano? Did you feel mm. like you liked hearing playing the notes? Was it a nice meditation being at the piano? Can you mm -hmm. go back to playing the piano for five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, whatever you pick the window without having this goal, but just, I'm gonna have fun making music for 10 minutes a day and see where that goes. That might be a really nice gift to yourself. And and also you forgive me for not having- Yes, of course, yes. you are forgiven. <laughs> it's so funny, It's I, I often say things that I have no- um, Authority? Yes, I have no authority in granting Mandate? permission, but I do it just to break the spell in 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 the artist's head. I, an artist was telling me a story about, yeah, I was, I hang out with my friends and we're out, we're having fun and I have an idea for a song. And I don't wanna like, you know, step away from them and write down the idea, I'm kind of embarrassed. And it's like, no, you have to do that. This isn't, wasn't even an artist I'm working with. I said, no, I give you permission <laughs> that when a song comes, you're allowed to do that. I'm giving you permission from this day forward, you can do that. Now it's ridiculous, I have no authority over him. He knows I have no authority over him, but somehow hearing it is like, it's like a key 
to a prison door opening. So I'm very free with sharing the keys to the prison doors. It's the beard, man. It's the beard. (laughs) Told you. (laughs) This book has been a big hit. Have you been overwhelmed by the response? And what have you heard from people? I'm delighted and surprised. I I could never imagine, because I think it's a strange book. I feel like, based on the questions you're asking, it's a strange book. (laughs) Strange is the best, in my opinion. I didn't know who would like it, but I knew I wanted it to exist. It's the book that I wish I had when I was young. And it would be a good thing if one person told me they loved the book and it changed their life. It would have, I don't know if it would have been worth eight years of my life, but it would have definitely felt good to at least know at least somebody it it did what it was supposed to do. I was also, um, I was in a fire maybe six months before the book came out. And I I was in a fire and I was sleeping, second floor of a house. Um, My wife and child got out. My wife said, fire, get out. I heard this and thought, okay, it's a fire. She's going to take care of it. I'm going back to sleep. And I went back to sleep. She was outside, and then I heard her screaming outside for help. And then I went to the window to say, stop screaming, when she said, you have to get out of the house. The house is burning down. And um, and she said, jump. And it was high, and it was a hard floor. And I felt like I would have got hurt, so I didn't do that. I went back in wrong. I did everything wrong. And then I'm going towards the staircase on my hands and knees because there's black smoke everywhere and I can't I I crash into a wall and then I'm crashing into another wall and then I start getting lightheaded and I realized this might this might well be it and I and I saw my wife and child outside and knowing they're safe outside and I the only thought I had was I'm so happy the book's done because at least whatever I know can go on such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for talking to me. That was NPR's Rachel Martin talking with music producer Rick Rubin. If you have ever wondered who is behind the music breaks that you hear during our show, it's our directors. And as you know, they've got good taste. So as we wind down 2023, we're bringing some of them to this side of the microphone to talk about some of the music they listen to the most this year. Think about it as all things considered wrapped. Producer Brianna Scott joins us now to talk about her end of year playlist. Hey, Bri. Hey. So when you were coming up with this segment, you wanted each producer to choose a theme. Yeah. And your theme is nostalgia. Why is that? Yeah, I like... I've been wrestling with a lot of my past and how it's shaped my current reality. And a lot of the music that I listened to this year, it's from my emo teenage years. I... And- I'm truly shocked you had an emo phase. I can't. I can't believe it. I, is that sarcasm? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't tell. Um, yes, I, I was an emo kid. You know, so let me pause to apply some eyeliner here mm-hmm. and get my bangs down. Very green day. Um, yes. But uh, give me some specifics. What did you listen to this year to capture that moment in your life? So I got back into Deftones this year. Mm-hmm. 
Deftones makes me feel electric and transports me back to those teenage years and allows me to reflect on that time. Music was my refuge. I was that kid always walking around with headphones in their ears, drowning out the world. Yeah. And music saved me in a lot of ways. Um, which brings me to my next music choice, The Wonder Years. Clear the apartment. I plan on collapsing. Half of the Wonder Years albums would be on the soundtrack to my life, like seriously. Um, I got to see them live for the first time in 2022, and then again this year for their 10-year anniversary of their album, The Greatest Generation. Um, and it was an emotional show for me because I was listening to these older dudes as a teen, mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I'm at a time in my life where I can really relate to their songs. Yeah. Growing up, trying to find your purpose, battling your internal demons, and I'm thinking that maybe my theme is nostalgia and hope mm -hmm. because the last band I want to talk about is the embodiment of hope for me and that's Explosions in the Sky. Oh my god, I could cry right now. <laughs> that's that's a lot. That's, that's a big pedestal to put a band on. Tell me why. When I listen to Explosions, their songs take me through every single human emotion that exists in a span of minutes. And I feel like for me, I get glimpses of my future when I listen to them. Like, I see my future and the life I want for myself. Um, I saw them for the first time in October um, this year, and it, no joke, changed my life. I remember when they came on stage and opened up with First Breath After a Coma, um, which is probably one of my all-time favorite songs by them. I instantly burst into tears. In pretty much the entire show, I, I couldn't stop crying. In one night, for one concert, one band, <laughs> my life changed, and my outlook on my life changed. 